0: Words are hard and sometimes sentences seem insurmountable.
1: Sentences are the mountains that we all climb on a daily basis. Yep. Pete, you can use that for the cold open. Good evening, everybody, and welcome to Did You Do Your Homework, the pop culture podcast that connects popular media to academic ideas. I, as always, am one of your delightful co-hosts, Martha Sullivan, and today I am a, well, today and most days, I am a comics connoisseur. I am joined today by my regular co-host.
2: I am pete romberg i'm a proud member of house ravenclaw and martha i must ask what makes today different than other days vis-a-vis your comics connoisseuring
1: you are so nice to ask me that because you know exactly what i want to be talking about right now
2: also i'm going to a Seder tomorrow and one of the questions is why is tonight unlike other nights so in in the similar vein i get to do this
1: Oh, okay Uh, Well, today was the first day of the Chicago Comics and Entertainment Expo E2E2, which is my very favorite convention that I get to go to every year Uh, It is also the convention I get to go to that is professionally relevant for me So my job pays for my admission to go and talk to people who make comics all day Nice Uh, I had a delightful time, I walked a lot, and I have two more days Uh, to go to panels and spend too much money and meet all of the people who make the comics that I get to enjoy all of the time.
2: Uh, I I just want to shout out that earlier tonight I completely guessed what C2E2 stood for and I was 100% right. So go me I can figure out what C and E stand for related to Chicago comics.
1: I didn't know it was a secret.
2: (laughs) I just didn't know. I was like, I know what C2E2 is. And other people were like, what is that? And I'm like, "Uh, probably stands for something.
1: Today, we are joined by a very special guest, a friend of the show and friend of mine in real life, Caitlin Hofert. Welcome to the podcast, Caitlin. How are you doing tonight? I'm doing well, thank you.
0: Thank you for
1: having me. We are very excited to have you on the show. I... Caitlin, why don't you tell our listeners a little bit about yourself and what you do?
0: I work as a private tutor with elementary school students doing one-on-one tutoring in reading, writing, and math. And I am also a volunteer and associate board member at Sarazin, which is a local domestic violence prevention and education group in Oak Park.
1: Ah. Yeah. Uh, Caitlin is going to be a little bit of our resident expert tonight for our main topic when we will be talking about toxic masculinity. Um, but before we get into the heavier side of the discussion, it is, as usual, time for us as your host to present you, our listener, with our pop culture credentials. This is the very last piece of media that we consumed, laid bare for your... Uh, listening amusement or uh, commiseration because I bet some of you out there enjoy the same things we do Uh, and these are presented to you without uh, editing or second guessing for guilty pleasure content Uh, Pete, why don't you lead us off? Because I am actually very excited to hear the story you're about to tell us. (laughs) All right. Uh, So
2: I am literally just coming back from a pop-up bar uh, in a suburb, the the town literally just south of Milwaukee called Cudahy. Um, It is a Harry Potter themed pop-up bar. And tonight was Ravenclaw night. And I self-identify as Ravenclaw, except apparently sometime between when they first posted their Facebook uh, event about this being a, it was like a two-week-long Harry Potter-themed pop-up bar, and now they clearly got hit by some sort of cease and desist letter because now what I actually went to was a wizard-themed pop-up bar, and tonight was House Raven Blue and White Knight. Um, And they also had house lion red and gold knight and house snake green and silver knight uh house badger yellow and black knight those of you who are harry potter fans which are all of you recognize that these are the houses without being the houses your classic similar to but legally distinct from the thing that just slapped us with a cease and desist letter uh that being said it was a great time um They decked the whole thing out. They clearly put a lot of time and effort into decking it out. They had themed shots for each of the houses, themed drinks for, uh, you know, there was a a Gillyweed and uh, Love Potion and Butterbeer, that that sort of thing for drinks. Um,
1: Yeah, it was a lot of fun. I'm a little disappointed that they didn't take the opportunity to, to come up with, like, truly bananas alternative house names
2: so i've been calling this um rook talon knight uh, at the cow bubo's academy for warlocks and sorceresses because i'm leaning really hard into this similar to but legally distinct from idea um so yeah in in one way i agree with you that i'm sad that they didn't do that but on the other hand it was slam and packed everybody knew what was going on Um, which might not have been the case if they had done, like, house, you know, rook talon or whatever.
0: Well, well, yes, I think the names, the names they chose are less witty than they could have been. But I'm assuming they were aiming for, you know, the masses we want, you know, they don't want anyone to be confused about what they're talking about.
2: Well, when I say this place decked it out, I mean, like, they literally had a smashed car with a whomping willow that when you pressed the button actually womped it like womped the oh, car wow. like set up above the dance floor so like it was decked out in a distinctly specific intellectual property kind of vibe <laughs> um
1: so yeah good time excellent uh Caitlin why don't you share your uh pop culture relic um, it's not quite as interesting
0: as Pete's bar, but I would say the most recent media I consumed was I watched an episode of the TV show Whitechapel while I ate lunch today. It's on it's on Hulu. It's a it's it's a British BBC crime show. Is that the one with David Tennant? Maybe. No. I I know I know the character names. I don't know the actual actor names.
1: (laughs) What's it? What it's. So it sounds like a Jack the Ripper type deal. What is it about? Is it like a, like a CSI murder mystery kind of deal?
0: It is, but it's, it's very British. Um, the, so, you know, the seasons are like two episodes long and,
1: and, and each one is an
2: hour and a half. Oh, yeah. This is some hardcore BBC, isn't it? Um, <laughs> or ITV, whatever.
0: And the the first season, you know, does kind of look at that Jack the Ripper trope. You know, they have a copycat killer that's, you know, recreating all of the murders on the specific days that they happen. Um, and then they kind of you know it follows this one unit where they get kind of all of the weird creepy murders. I'm into that.
2: So so this is like modern day or is it like 1890?
1: It's modern day. Ooh, cool. So it's like a it's a Jack the Ripper type copycat only as like a reenactment. Yeah, so you know
0: the murderer is murdering people on the day on you know the exact you know calendar day that they were originally murdered. and you know, obviously the landscape of Whitechapel has changed, but they you know, try to commit the murders as geographically close to the original event as possible. Mm. So they're, you know following along, trying to, you know, catch the murderer at these different crime scenes Mm -hmm.
1: as for my own self uh as i was coming back on the train tonight i was i have been uh i got to take the train today which is not something i get to do on my commute uh normally anymore i do a lot of driving uh but it means that I, i i am getting a chance to power through some of the reading that i need to do for work uh, next Friday, I am meeting with my teen book club and the book that we are reading is The Cruel Prince by Holly Black. It's a brand new book from uh, from Holly. She writes, I think, some of the best urban fairy tales. Uh sort of being currently produced. Uh, she Her stuff is very dark and romantic and kind of dangerous. And I'm thoroughly enjoying uh, The Cruel Prince so far. It is about twin girls who, at the very beginning, like in the prologue of the book, uh, find out that their mother used to be married to a fairy. And they find this out when he kicks their door in, kills both their parents, and then steals the two of them away uh, to Fairyland. So it is picks up again when the twins are 16 and have been living their childhood uh, in the household of this uh, very powerful fairy in Fairyland. Uh, it's lovely, and I highly recommend it. I'm, I'm about halfway through. I hope to have it finished in the next couple of days.
2: Well, that answers my question of, is urban fairy tale like a less hardcore version of urban fantasy? but apparently the answer is heck no cuz the plot you just described sounds pretty hardcore.
1: Oh no, like she writes very straight um like brothers Grimm style fairy tales that mm-hmm. just happen to take place now.
2: Sure. sure. So she
1: writes a lot of a lot of stuff about the intersection between like what we recognize as the modern world and um a very traditional which means like these are fairies who will kill you, mm-hmm. uh, type of fairyland.
2: Yeah, like like and, the witches are doing cannibalism.
1: It's it's more like it's more like fairies have um, like no concept of what it means to be mortal. So like all the stuff that they consider to be like fun and flighty, it's like oh, you made this poor woman dance herself to death because you thought it was amusing, mm. like. Yeah. <laughs> Interesting. So when you say it's kind of in,
0: like, Brothers Grimm style, does that mean that most of her books kind of have neutral or unhappy endings?
1: Um, I would say they're more neutral. Like, frequently her characters get what they're looking for, but they have to give up so much there's, like, a question of, you know, was was it worth it?
0: Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm
1: but her her books are also do have a uh, a romantic kind of thread through them, so there's also frequently a love story um that when in, when they resolve when they resolve negatively, it is more like sad and melancholy than purely tragic because she's still she's still writing for teenagers so there there's yeah. not a lot there's not a like they're not extremely nihilistic uh but they're also definitely not all like sunshine happy endings um okay she wrote a very good book about vampires called the coldest girl in cold town which was <laughs> one of the first uh, <laughs> I,
2: I like that was, title a lot
1: yeah <laughs> it, it was actually it was one of the first compelling Uh, vampire stories that I'd read after I decided I was kind of over vampires. But yeah, Holly Black, she's fun. I recommend her. Now it is time to get into the episode proper. Uh, Today we are tackling a pretty, pretty big and pretty relevant topic.
2: It's a low-key and chill topic that has no real relevance to modern times or things.
1: Says the man. I'm I'm on excited the show. to mansplain
2: <laughs> all over this episode.
1: Uh, sh- today we will be talking about toxic masculinity. Uh, We're going to be looking at a couple of specific instances of it, how it manifests differently in two different. Two I think very different uh fictional stories. And we're also going to be reflecting on two uh illuminating TED talks that uh we watched for the episode. Um and, I, and I, actually This is our first
2: like academic homework, which I'm really excited about, and I'm very glad that you assigned them, Caitlin. Oh
1: okay.
0: yeah. thank you. They were both of those podcasts were actually part of the 40 hour training I did. In order to volunteer at Sarah's in uh, their crisis line.
1: And I think that I would like, to, Caitlin, I'd like to have you lead off our discussion of the specific homeworks. Because I think that talking about the the TED Talks first will help contextualize our discussion of the other uh, um, other pieces of media that we looked at for this episode. So why don't you uh, introduce the the videos you had us watch and give us a little background as to why you picked them.
0: So for homework, we had two TED Talks, one by Jackson Katz and the other by Tony Porter, both looking at domestic violence and toxic masculinity. Uh, The first one by Jackson Katz kind of categorized it as, you know, a... A leadership issue that we don't have enough men and women, you know, standing up uh, to kind of this like toxic masculine culture that very often puts the blame on women and kind of using language and syntax makes it so, you know, the woman is almost not even, you know, human or what happened to her is kind of stated from this third person point of view. And then Tony Porter, his TED Talk was kind of drew from his childhood and his experience as a parent and how he was raised uh, in a very, you know, kind of harsh you know, poor area and kind of how toxic masculinity had to kind of be embraced in order to survive. And then how that affected how he raised his own two children.
1: And uh, you said these videos were part of your uh, training for Sarah's in. They were.
0: Um, We did a number of Ted talks um, as well as, you know, kind of other activities, but, you know they tried to make the the training relevant and interesting, and you know really approached it from an academic view and a public health view.
1: Sure. Uh, what was it about these two in particular uh, that you, um, I guess, liked specifically or stood out to you? What stood out to me
0: about Tony Porter's TED Talk was when he was talking about how when both of his children were five, how his daughter Mm. could, you know, skin her knee or something would happen and she could come crying to him and he would, you know, hold her and tell her it was going to be okay and let her cry it all out. But when his son was the exact same age and came, you know, crying to him and was upset about something, how... Tony Porter, you know, screamed at him and told him to go to his room and stop crying and that he could come back and talk to him when he was not crying like a man. Um, So these are two children, different genders, but they're both the same age. They're in the same developmental period where, you know, crying and seeking parental acceptance and love and reassurement like there's that same drive regardless of the gender of the child but how tony porter reacted very differently depending on whether it was his son or his daughter and uh jackson katz i thought his ted talk was very interesting because i had never heard uh Toxic masculinity and or domestic violence framed as a leadership issue. So I just thought that mm-hmm. was a very interesting take on it.
1: Yeah, mm-hmm. the part of uh, Katz's that I really appreciated was how he leads off with the language framing, mm-hmm. and just um, because I think that we see a lot of that. Uh, you know, the the phrase victim blaming comes up a lot. Uh, because that's sort of the tendency to frame these issues like oh well you know this what was she wearing like what was you know not not even just um in terms of the the victim um you know what they were doing but also like changing the changing the sentence structure from active voice to passive voice like it's not
2: it's not it just worked. victim blaming, it's abuser eraser. Like, like you, yeah. you, you construct the language such that there is only a victim and an action, and no victimizer.
1: Yeah, so I thought that that was... Um, I appreciated that he led off with that, because I think that that's a really... Uh, It is a terrible tendency It is a terrible tendency that our culture has To frame these issues that way uh, And I I appreciated That he called them out like that I'll tell you, the point at which he lost Me a little bit In his talk was when he started t- Was when he started um, Phrasing like Why men should care about This issue by like You have women in your life And I really yeah. hate it yep. When speakers do that Um, because that feels like another way of re it it feels like another version of what he is talking about with the, the language issue, um, that you
0: should care that, you know, they're human beings, that it doesn't matter if they're women, a fellow human being who shares this planet with you.
2: Right. Like it doesn't matter if it's like my mother or my like fiance or my, I don't have a sister, whatever, sister-in-law, whatever. It's like, that doesn't matter. It's another person. Gender, regardless, and, and
1: and it almost is still reinforcing the issue that I think that he's talking about when he's when he's reframing this as, um, you know, it's not like by saying it's a it's a woman's issue, then we almost then we absolve the the part that men play in that, and by by needing to contextualize it as like oh well, you have a mother or you have sisters, it feels like we're still centering like it's still a woman's issue and we're still um erasing the responsibility that men have by keeping it framed in that way i don't know i feel like i'm not um i i verbalizing this very well
2: i completely agree um i think like the first half of his talk i was very into i like the idea of like it's not a women's issue in the same way that like gay rights isn't a gay issue it's a human issue um same with this like domestic violence quote-unquote women's issues aren't that they're like human issues uh that we need to solve as people um his language diagramming i was super into but also as someone who does that kind of as a job like to like edit people's work i hate the passive voice most of the time so i was already on board with his like yeah don't make it passive make it active like don't erase the victim because also that's bad writing Um, on top of everything else. Uh, But I I feel like in the second half, he went a little too broad and diffuse and it kind of lost me. Like not only when he started talking about like, because you have mothers and daughters and sisters, but also like he, he would like make a good point and then almost immediately undermine it by making a separate point. Kind of like the shotgun effect, like, trying to hit a broad array of ideas, which meant that, like, his... a, a more singular focus didn't happen. Um, that being said, I loved Tony Porter's um, video uh, speech, I guess. What what do you call it? TED Talk. TED Talk. TED Talk. Yeah, there we go. TED Talk. <laughs> what do his... you call a TED Talk? You call it a TED Talk. Um, I loved
1: his man box analogy.
2: Yes. I Everything he did was great. Because that felt...
1: The, uh, the man box analogy uh for our listeners is what uh, porter homework. referred to as like the box that men are trapped trapped is that the right word i would say that it's, uh, yeah. like the restrictions yeah. the restrictions that they feel the need to fit within so when he's talking about um like the role that he felt he had to play growing up that got so ingrained in him that he continued to play it as a father was as a result of him being trapped inside this man box uh that he is encouraging men to find ways to break out of uh and that analogy felt very apropos considering Mm -hmm. our other uh homework that we're going to be talking about tonight
2: that that idea seems to me like the very touchstone of toxic masculinity which is like as a man you need to be tough and like serious and a provider which on the surface feels good but on the when you delve down you're like oh that's also problematic um and like you know heterosexual he he had a whole list on it like but it's like some elements might appear positive some elements appear on the surface very negative but all of the elements when you dig down on you're like oh those are all of them confining and problematic in one way or another um And I think they all kind of form a cornerstone to toxic masculinity and various elements will crop up in our other two homeworks as Martha literally just said.
0: um, Just to add some of the other things I remember was, you know, just his, you know, insightful yet kind of horrifying example that, you know, again, is part of that man box that, you know, you're supposed to have this voracious sexual appetite and Mm want to have sex Mm -hmm. all the time. And also that, you know, it's not okay to experience, you know, fear that, you know, kind of the main broad emotion that's encouraged as part of, you know, coming off as tough is that, you know, you're supposed to be angry and that Mm. being angry and lashing out is acceptable.
2: Yeah. It was was a really good TED Talk. It was... Phenomenal. He he
1: had some pretty rough stories that I thought he was very brave for sharing with us. Yeah. 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 Um, Pete, I would like you to go next uh, for talking about homework. Sure. Um, Because I... Chronologically, yours comes next.
2: Well... (sighs) Man, I'm I'm seeing in the notes that you said this first aired in 1999, which you Correct. followed up with by saying it's almost 20 years ago, and I don't believe you. Uh, that was like that is
1: what IMDb says.
2: That was 10 years ago, wasn't it? 1999.
1: That was 10. 10- no, because as as Bill keeps reminding me, the 90s were 20 years ago.
0: Yeah. Well, Pete, born in 1997 can drink at bars now.
2: I just don't believe that. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, I assigned... Tell us
1: about The Sopranos, Peter.
2: <laughs> I assigned uh, the first episode of The Sopranos. Um, I assigned this for a couple reasons. The first uh, and the most flippant reason, which I didn't think of until later, is that Tony is in the waste management consultant business, which is toxic masculinity. Um mm,
1: No. <laughs> So
2: the the real reasons I assigned this were that um I I do think that like the Sopranos inarguably kicked off the golden age of television which ties into our topic for next episode which is going to be anti-heroes I think um but also so many elements of like golden age TV deal with toxic masculinity as like a more positive element and here I'm thinking things like Breaking Bad half the things you'll find on Netflix um or or similar shows, have th- like The Walking Dead, uh, it's sort of, like, ingrained in our modern culture, is that we have, like, these prestige television shows that deal with white men heroes who are rough around the edges and or straight-up bad guys, but whom we're supposed to sympathize with because they're the protagonists of the story. Um, and I, I think The Sopranos channels a lot of that. Also, specifically, this is 1999, the whole conceit of The Sopranos is that, like, Tony Soprano is a mob boss, but he's going to therapy. Um, ha ha ha, men don't do that. Uh, but also sometimes he they even, do, like, it, there's a lot of, like, lampshading. Yeah.
1: He even gives a speech about how, like, where the strong but silent type Yeah. Ex- example of masculinity go in our pop culture and I was kind of like really do we want to get this
2: on the nose
1: on the nose
2: (laughs) (laughs) well I'm glad that was in this like when I assigned this I kind of like I'd seen this episode a few times a couple years ago most recently uh couldn't remember exactly what was in this episode versus like other ones but I wanted a good um pilot episode rather than like season two episode three um so I'm glad that this did kind of hit everything on the nose as well as it did.
1: I had never seen The Sopranos
2: before. I I, I should say, sorry, before you you finish that one up. I've never finished The Sopranos. Uh, I've always gotten through like season three and then kind of faded out. So there's my, you know, undercutting my own credentials.
1: This was the first time I had ever experienced it. And I am resentful. Of how much I enjoyed it.
2: I so want to
1: hear because, the explanation behind this. Okay, so I typically avoid TV shows that feature those kind of white male anti-hero types because... You're Breaking
2: Beds, you're Walking Deads.
1: I... Well, I watched Walking Dead for a while until it got Mm boring. But I've never watched Breaking Bad. I've never watched Dexter. Mm -hmm. I don't want to watch shows that ask me to empathize with and root for people that are bad. Mm -hmm. And I understand that the point of this show is that like you have to like Tony, otherwise it doesn't work. (laughs) Right. But I'm watching it going... I am very charmed by this man. He kills people. Mhm. Yep.
2: James and, Gandolfini is a really good actor. RIP.
1: And I don't it's I don't appreciate the storytelling convention of we're going to make you sympathize with our terrible broken hero because we need you Like, when he starts doing really bad things, we need you to still be on his side. Like, no, he's still going to be doing really bad things.
2: This might be an impossible or unfair question, but do you think you'd feel differently if, like, every prestige television show for the past 20 years hasn't been doing that? Like, if if this were, like, the only show that was doing that, do you think you'd feel differently?
1: Absolutely. Okay. Okay. Like, there, it, there's absolutely a sense of, like, ugh, another old white guy who mm-hmm. is breaking the law to, you know, for whatever reason, and, like, and, and, it is...
2: That, that's why I, I was, wanted to assign this, because this was, like, the the patient zero of the last 20 years of these kinds of shows.
0: I, I at least liked, what I liked about the episode was, you know, when he, you know... The impetus for him going to therapy was these panic attacks that you can kind of see that, like, this is what happens when, you know, you have your man box and
2: mm.
0: no one, no one does anything to intervene in your life. That, you know, there's so much stress and so much pressure that has built up of like oh you know you're this mob boss these are all these different boxes that you have to check and all these different roles you have to play that you know it gets to the point where you know like mentally and psychologically he just he can't do it
2: you you like that it showed the consequences
0: yes Mm -hmm. you know oh sorry go ahead
1: no finish your thought
0: Oh, I just liked that it showed that, you know, yeah, that, you know, on his mental health, like, you know, this man box, like, you know, these are some of the repercussions. And this is how it plays out in this mob boss's life.
1: Well, and I really loved his therapist. Melfi, so good. Yes. um, So she's a a woman doctor, which I think is great. Uh, And she's also you know, very on the side of like, it helps to talk about your feelings. And I I appreciated that, that the show is clearly showing therapy. Well, not clearly, I guess it could take a turn. I hope it doesn't, Um, but is showing therapy in a helpful and productive light. So it's on the side, it seems to be on the side of, these like hardcore masculine rules that Tony follows are flawed. Like the show is making a point that like, this is not healthy for you to not talk about your, or like not feel things or not accept what you're feeling. Uh, So I do appreciate that. And I'm, I, I will be real. I will probably continue to watch it because I'm finding it very engaging. I'm just sitting here a little cross-armed and sulky that i am finding it engaging
2: James <laughs> getting off and he stop being so good it's hurting my
1: brand pete it's
2: hurting well and, and so that being said like talking about toxic masculinity there's a scene near the end of the episode where tony's wife is like you know like oh like he he comes clean to her that he's seeing a therapist and it's a big emotional moment he's like i gotta confess and she's like who are you cheating on me with now? He's like, no, I'm taking Prozac. And she's like, oh, I'm so happy. Um, But she's like, your therapist, what do you say about this? And and Tony's like, huh? He's like, your therapist, what do you say? And he's just like, oh yeah, he totally said this, that, the other, um, because he's a bad person. Um, But like, she, like his wife is just assuming that the therapist is a man. Um, And then like, Tony being Tony, isn't going to actually like, correct her assumption there. Um,
1: and that assumption is interesting because the show has positioned the male characters to be these like very macho. Um, eh, hey, forget about it, goo Right, like, and I, I understand that. That's like I understand that that's because we're looking at predominantly male characters that are part of this New York mob. Um, Jersey, but it is interesting that his wife would assume that somebody in his life who is predominantly there to talk about his feelings would be male and i assume the show does that so that we can have this bit of misunderstanding and that eventually she'll find out that dr Malfi is a woman and then that will be a whole thing because oh, this is dramatic tv i, I read that um, as
2: entirely like she assumed that a doctor would be a man like i i didn't even go into the doctor talking about your feelings just the like you're a professional or a even a medical professional so therefore you must be a male
0: oh that could be it too yeah that's really interesting because i oh sorry no i I thought the same thing that it was interesting that she assumed it was a man because i was thinking you know yeah most therapists are women women but yeah that's i never even it occurred it didn't occur to me to think about it from the perspective of oh most medical professionals or you know when you think of like doctor doctors are
1: men um say i wanted to start with pete before i got into my homework because i still think that the sopranos you know even though it's it's making a, a statement about how it's actually good to talk about your feelings tony is still a character that we are meant to sympathize with and is positioned as the hero of this show uh so in some ways the the very like masculine uh Character traits are things that we are meant to be charmed. It glorifies them in a way, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, be charmed Uh,
2: by, that's a good way to put it.
1: Unlike the book that I made you both read. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, So I assigned a YA novel, as is my want, uh, titled Devils Within by S.F. Henson. Uh, This book came out in 2017, I think end of last year, um, and it is about a boy named Nate who, at the beginning of the book, uh, escapes from a white supremacy, a white supremacist compound. His father is the de facto leader of this compound. He has been raised and indoctrinated in white supremacist, white uh, supremacist sort of philosophy and lore. Uh, He has been heavily abused as a child uh, and he finally is able to uh, escape. He kills his father in self-defense and runs away from the compound and is then uh, pretty immediately, he gets picked up by uh, the police. He, goes to trial for his father's murder, spends some time in an asylum, and then is released into the custody of his uncle and basically placed in witness protection because the members of the compound are hunting him um, for killing their leader. Uh, It's a very raw, uh, very violent uh, account in some places. He talks about the things that he did uh, in when he was in the, the compound and a lot of it is framed as like, this is what I had to do. Otherwise they would have killed me, but it doesn't shy away from the fact that he still did some pretty terrible things. Um, What did you guys think of this one?
0: I really liked the book and I, I, I definitely felt it was easier to sympathize with Nate than it was Tony Soprano. And I I thought it was really compelling. I had I didn't know a lot about you know white supremacy and the current the current age 2017 to now, um, and the you know real statistics that the author included about you know the number of hate organizations kind of like state by state. It was enlightening and horrifying at the same time. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, she does. the The author note at the end um, talks about how while this book itself isn't specifically based on a true uh, event, it is based on a lot of true things that have happened. So she weaves a lot of actual hate crimes, um, a lot of actual events and facts and uh, places and situations into the narrative, so that while it, it in it, eh. Uh, it in and of itself is not a true story. It is made up of a lot of true story pieces.
2: While she doesn't footnote the book, her author's note is definitely must-read. Yes. Um, Yeah. You know me. YA lit. I was
1: going to say. So, uh, Pete... <laughs> I told uh, you I was going to make this joke, and now yeah. I'm committed to making the joke. On a scale from spontaneous to 13 Reasons Why, where do you put uh, Devils Within?
2: So I actually like Devils Within <laughs> quite a bit. Uh, it is far closer to the spontaneous on the spectrum of Martha's making me read a YA book uh, than 13 Reasons Why. Um, I Any quibble I would have would be a fairly minor and mostly like ideological i'm a lefty quibble um so and also just like a ya book quibble um across the board i really enjoy well you know enjoyed as much as one can uh a book about a kid who was a former neo-nazi um i thought it was really well written hashtag woke hashtag timely um (laughs) I would definitely recommend it to any, like, high school kid. And especially white kids. Um, What was
1: the reservation that you had about it?
2: Oh, like, entirely for stupid reasons. There were uh, a couple moments where I was like... I mean, I I haven't researched the far right, but I also, like, am on Twitter. And therefore, I have read a lot of, like, Vox think pieces about the far right and the alt-right and stuff. And I'm like, I'm pretty sure they're as dysfunctional as the far left. So, like... Maybe, like, the Aryan Brotherhood would go beat up a guy who killed the dude from this other rival right-wing group, but maybe they wouldn't because, like, they're all fractured and hate each other as much as anyone else. Um, And also, I was just a little kind of—and this is, like, really, really stupid— unhappy that he called them the Nazi Socialist Party, because I'm like, socialist is in the Nazi part, and now you're just sort of underlining the socialist part for no good reason— uh like i said stupid minor quibbles
1: i don't even does nate call them that
2: yeah repeatedly they're they're the capital nazi capital socialist capital party this is a pete specific issue
1: well and that has to be i mean nate would only call them that because they called themselves that
2: yes but it's a made-up right-wing group so the author oh. chose to call them that. The, the, it, it's all stupid. I'm going to cut all of this out because it's stupid. Like, it, it is <laughs> It is my stupid dysfunction because I'm like, why are you throwing the socialists under the bus? <laughs> so
1: I'm sorry. I just don't. No, like, it's. I, it's, I didn't even notice. So. It's, it's
2: stupid things Uh, because generally I really liked this book.
1: One of the things that I really loved it. So. I did not reread it for homework because I read it just a few weeks ago anyway. Um but I was watching the Tony Porter TED Talk and the concept of that mm. man box. Mm-hmm. I was like that's this book. Mm-hmm. Like this book is completely about men and boys and girls being like having this frame that they are expected to fit inside and when they're when they don't or when they uh try to choose not to i mean nate nate does some pretty horrible stuff but nate is also like beaten extremely badly when he uh shows any kind of like defiance or uh desire to not do the things that he's asked to do and it's a you know just um, to to contextualize it inside of that, like, this is the framework we expect our men to act inside, and when you don't, the uh, consequences can be fatal, um, I thought it was a very illuminating way to think about uh, the uh, society that Nate grows up in.
2: And and more so than that, uh, I think the man box also uh, applies to his uncle who takes him in. Um, up until, like, what, the two-thirds point or whatever. Um, but, like, nobody is talking about their feelings in a healthy way for most of the book, and that's entirely because both the society they grew up in, but even outside that society, the mainstream society isn't prioritizing that or teaching them how to. Um, there's a good line from... Uh, pop culture happy hour which is that men invented basketball and video games so that they could talk about their feelings with each other uh which is hilarious and also true because men are not like taught to talk about their feelings with each other um and that yeah,
1: i saw a quote on twitter the other day just real fast pete mm-hmm. that was the longest con men have ever pulled is that is trying to convince us all that sports is not about feelings. <laughs> <laughs>
2: right, right. But, like, uh, like bo- both inside their Nazi society and then also outside of it, Nate and his uncle are not, like, prepared to have the discussions they need to be having in order to, like, move forward with each other.
1: Yeah, Nate spends a lot of the book uh, assuming feelings on behalf of his uncle that are sort of the product of how he feels about himself and how other men have treated him. Um, And also because his uncle is bad at feelings. So, you know, you don't really blame Nate for feeling like his uncle hates him for most of the book. Uh, His uncle doesn't hate him specifically. He hates a lot of what Nate kind of represents or used to represent but yeah nobody talks about it in a healthy way and it takes most of the book for that to be resolved and also honestly like his
2: uncle's girlfriend to be like yo figure this out
1: can can i just say how much i really loved the scene so his uncle's girlfriend is asian and there is a lot of very uncomfortable uh, internal moments that Nate has when he is actively trying to shift the language that his brain thinks in. Mm-hmm. Because I, he's I loved all so p- those
2: bits. They were, like, really yes. potent.
1: Yeah. And he has to be told that, like, oriental is an offensive term because he, like, there, there are some words that he knows instinctually are not... Good words but that one he like he honestly doesn't realize that that is offensive and and And, and, i mean when he's told when he's told he makes the the conscious effort to shift it from his vocabulary but just you know his internal monologue moments when he's like i can't say that i know that's wrong i know that's my conditioning and like you can see his brain make those shifts that Mm -hmm. I thought was very well done. I also really enjoyed just
0: the author's description when he was first going to a public high school. Like, you know, like he had never had a backpack and had to go to different classes before. And I kind of just, you know, throughout reading that, imagined him as, you know, like this deer in the headlights who inside is terrified, but he, you know, his first... You know, he has very antagonistic relationships with several other students in the beginning. And, you know, he's trying to come off and make a good impression. But, you know, his gut conditioning, because of how he was raised, he's like, oh, like, I'm going to make this person like scared of me or I'm not going to apologize for, you know, slamming a door into your face and giving you like a bloody nose So I thought that was that was very interesting where his his internal dialogue, you know, he felt bad and he wanted to fit in and he just wanted to make friends. But still, in his first experiences with people, he's like he still comes off as, you know, like this, you know, like tough, you know, juvie kid that, you know, matches up with the little blurb that the school receives about him
2: Be- because he literally doesn't know how to fit in because his entire upbringing reasonably up to that point has been in a neo-nazi compound so it's you know like he's only used to violence and threats of violence and so the idea that like a- and people like lying and manipulating so the idea that like that's not what's happening is not something that he's ready to to deal with. It 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 it's a lot of good trauma. I mean like not good trauma, but like it's a good book about trauma.
1: Um I also wanna say I also want to say just real fast that I don't think the book ever uses Nate to uh rehabilitate the rest of the neo Nazi group. Like I never got the sense. No, that all this bad was, guys. Yeah I never got the sense that this was like a you know they're all misunderstood people who were just raised this way and can be like reformed if we try hard enough like no Nate is very specifically different from um, so the adults the adults that he grows up with
2: right so like i I don't disagree with you like i i I completely agree that it's not rehabilitating anyone who's not trying to re- rehabilitate themselves um you know, his uncle, Kelsey, whatever. Like, they're all trying to leave and rehabilitate themselves. But, like, it also does a good job at, like... And this is what I liked about this book and why I think it's so hashtag timely and hashtag woke... Is that it does a really good job at identifying what makes neo-Nazism and white supremacy attractive to particular people. Uh, the methods that they use to recruit and indoctrinate... um. And and like why like it, it does a good job at like like not rehabilitating but almost like humanizing is the wrong word because like the the the, the neo Nazis who get names are objectively like bad people, um, uh who uh the, the guy who he like routinely fights a couple times over the course of the book, um,
1: Tommy, s- I want to say uh, yeah
0: the, something the like that brothers.
2: There's, like, the two brothers and then there's, like, the other dude that he niked as a kid and, and whatever. But, like, so so they're all, like, clearly, like, bad guys uh, across the board. But, like, in general, it does a good job at, like, I don't want to use the word humanizing, but, like, explaining why someone would, like, find this appealing while simultaneously saying it's an abhorrent thing to find appealing. Like, it 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 does a good job at straddling that line. It is understanding without empathy. Yes, fantastic phrasing.
0: What I also really liked when they talked about how they recruited people is it, again, made me think of that man box. When they're recruiting people and they're like, oh, you know, you didn't get that last promotion or, you know, there are all these things wrong in your life. It's because, you know, like if you become a white supremacist and like join our group, like we will we will fix your man box like you can. Mm You can, you know, you can be you can be manly and be in charge and that, you know, the reason the reasons for all of your failures, you know, they're not they're not your fault. Like, you know, you, you shouldn't have any chips in your man box like you can be tough.
2: It is the most rigidly reinforcing of the man box like ideology, like the man box is good. Here's how we will make sure you are squarely in the center of it because it's a great place to be.
1: Well, and white supremacy in general, I think is the like extrapolated out extreme end of ta- of toxic masculinity. Like it is yeah. reinforcing <laughs> it is reinforcing this idea that there is only one way to be a man and if you don't fit into that, not only are you not a real man, but we're going to hurt you until you either cease to be or cease doing this thing that we think is wrong.
2: I, I'm laughing because as I was reading it, I was thinking like, Martha dialed it up to eleven on this one. <laughs> like she like <laughs> chose the most extreme example of this topic uh, to include. Uh, I, not, I not feel a bad like, thing, like I gave like
1: you guys. I feel like I had another option that I didn't end up going with, and I don't even remember what that option was because I was like, no, actually, this is what we're talking about now. <laughs> like, uh, <laughs> we're, we're gonna go maximalist on this. Yes. Okay, so we have a couple of broader questions that I would like us to turn our attention to now to uh, talk talk about some stuff um, with all of our Ooh, homework so in talk context. talk about some stuff. Talk about some stuff. Uh, but first, Caitlin, I have a question for you. Uh, one of the reasons we picked this topic was because you mentioned it was something that you... Uh, approach with your students. And I'd love to hear a little bit about how you talk about toxic masculinity with the students that you tutor.
0: I would say, especially with the elementary school age group, I focus a lot on trying to teach kids about empathy. I don't specifically always use the word empathy, but a lot of, you know, let's read all of these books and put ourselves in perspectives of different people and then after we're done reading kind of go through some discussion questions being like you know when this happened in the book how do you think the main character felt if you were in the situation how would you feel would you do the same thing as the main character would you do something different um because i think to kind of fight toxic masculinity i think being able to have social intelligence and empathy goes a long way. And then I also just in general for the book topics that I choose with my reading and writing students, I try to pick books that feature a lot of non-white children. Um, Mm -hmm. A lot of the students I work with are non-white and um, the research shows that kids are going to have You know they're going to develop better if they read books where people from their background, culture, race are portrayed in a positive
1: way.
2: Representation matters.
1: Yes, and then we come back to that a lot on this podcast. It (laughs) turns out
2: (laughs) almost every episode, (laughs) anyway.
0: And then I also just make them read a lot of books with women as main characters. Mm -hmm. Um, I and like there was one instance with one of my students that you know broke my heart because I was trying there's this book series where it has there are different books that follow different classmates there's like Pedro who's Hispanic there's Katie Wu who's Asian and I you know picked up one of Katie Wu's books and you know it had you know obviously this girl on the cover and you know one of these uh kids that I work with said, you know, like, oh, I don't want to read it. It's a girl book. And I'm like, you know, it has, yes, it has a girl as the main character, but that, you know, doesn't mean that only certain people can read the book. Like it's for everyone to read, no matter who the main character is. And, you know, he, he pushed back and eventually it got to the point where he said that, you know, like he had been told, that it's okay for girls to like boy things, but it's not okay for boys to like girl things. Hmm. And that kind of like broke my heart. And I'm like, oh no, like, okay, okay. We can, we can, we can fix this. Like we're going to read books where the covers are pink and purple. And we're going to read lots of books about a variety of female characters and just try to, you know, undo some of that and realize that you know if a woman's the main character that doesn't mean that it's a girl book that doesn't limit the audience of who would find that story interesting and who would like it
1: i love that for so many reasons
2: i feel like that is very indicative of like the mainstream culture that we're in right now, which is that like girls are allowed to like boy things and are often praised for it. Um, you know, women in STEM, which is generally coded male, although it shouldn't be. Um tomboys, that sort of thing. It's all like that's all very positive coding. Whereas the flip side is very much still uh radical. Uh like to to have to have boys like girl things is definitely far more radical than girls liking boy things
1: well and i work with an audience uh that is a little bit older than your students caitlin i work mostly with teenagers uh and teenager parents uh and i even at even at the older ages i still get parents coming in saying like i need a book for my son uh oh he won't read like he won't read books about girls and i'm kind of like well except i bet he's read the hunger games like sure <laughs> i i still get people who come in and are like well i need a book that my and it's always it's always um boys like the concern is always with like i need a book that my boy will be interested in and it can't be like Uh, It can't be a quote-unquote girl book, which in YA lit especially means, like, no romance, uh, doesn't feature a girl, is probably about sports. And it drives me nuts, (laughs) because there's no good reason for it.
2: Did you guys see um, McSweeney's had a thing uh, with um, Ready Player One coming out, which is an entire separate conversation?
1: Ready Player Two?
2: I do mean Ready Player Two. Uh, So the entire conceit is like, what if Ready Player One was written about all, like, the girl-centric things from the 80s and 90s? Uh, It was hilarious. But also, a lot of the references were lost on me because, like, I never read American Girl Dells. I'm not going to. I would not have been interested in it as a kid. Um, And I liked history. Like... In many ways, it should have been up my alley because, like, oh, here's some historical fiction. I'm into that. But also, it was coded so heavily female um, that I, I never, ever would have even thought of picking it up.
1: Well, and then there were the there were the Dear America Diaries books, which featured uh, girls, and then they had a separate line. Called I Am America, which featured boys. Like, they had to do a completely differently Hmm. branded series, which were the same thing. They were historical, like, epistolary novels um, about, like, 11 to 12 year old kids. (laughs) I also hated My
2: Brother Sam is Dead, so there's a chance I never would have read any of these for any reason, gender regardless, because fifth grade, that was. Yeah,
1: this. This whole this whole notion that we have to have separate media for boys and girls is something that is, I think, slowly going away. It could it could die faster. I would not be sad about that. Um But yeah, just hearing about uh how you go through that with your students, Caitlin. I just I love everything about that. Yeah. Yeah, and just
0: one thing, um, your comments made me think of is I do think it's going away, but I think we have to be really careful about you know how we treat children because it it reminds me of this commercial I saw where Nerf came out with like Nerf guns and it about the time of the Hunger Games they came out with a Nerf bow and arrow for girls and it was white, pink, and purple. Oh, of course and it was.
2: Are you kidding me?
0: No, she's not. Because I'm like, uh, a a Nerf gun or a Nerf bow and arrow, like, you don't need two separate products for boys and girls, but also from a capitalist perspective, if you have girl bow and arrows and boy bow and arrows, you Mm. can sell potentially twice as many Nerf bow and arrows.
2: Like, blue and yellow, which is generic Nerf colors, are not gendered in any direction.
1: Exactly. Well, it's like every time a company has to make a, like, masculine version of a product that's typically coded as feminine, and it has to have, like, something manly in the title, like, there are a bunch of, uh, body washes that have to be, like, oh or even,
0: I was thinking Clinique for Men, because Clinique, because, like, the, the, I don't know, like, the yellow blue like the packaging isn't that that girly but it's like oh you're putting the exact same product into a black and gray bottle and saying oh this is clinique for men separate from clinique for women caitlin <laughs> if it's, it's right.
2: not black and red and gray and has like tiger in the title i ain't buying it it's as easy <laughs> as that <laughs> <laughs>
1: <laughs> Ooh, uh, yikes So I actually think we've covered most of the discussion questions that I had in our document. I know we didn't really introduce them at the beginning of the episode. I'll put them in our blog post. Uh, But the one that I do want to make sure that we cover before we finish, uh, before we wrap up, is... uh, So I don't remember if we were on air, Pete, when you and I were talking about this. But The Sopranos debuted in 1999, which was almost 20 years ago. We were on air. Uh, I think I made a big deal about that. (laughs) and (laughs) was kind of the prototype of this you know white male anti-hero uh simmering in this toxic masculinity in these toxic masculinity tropes do we think that this is a show that could debut today caitlin Um, i'll let you
2: take first whack at this
0: in in a trump administration america who knows what's going to happen or what's possible
2: you raise a valid and horrifying point um well
1: and i think that while while i think that tv is shifting towards a more diverse base of stories and characters you know again slowly but surely uh, I think the answer is yes. I don't think that we as a culture have lost our fascination for this kind of character. I think that Mad Men and Breaking Bad and uh the Walking Dead, which is the only one of the three shows I just listed that is still uh going on, you know, I think, and to a certain extent, a lot of like the Marvel shows on Netflix. Kind of continue to espouse these ideas. Well, and for me, um, I just got back into
2: Peaky Blinders, and like, that is totally right. this just set in the 20s and without the, you know, nuance.
1: Well, and that's actually. <laughs> and an interesting I, I love question. Peaky Blinders, but
2: like, yikes.
1: That's an interesting question because do we think the historical context makes it more acceptable?
2: I. I think it in some ways it might give it a pass, but the fact that we're like we're greenlighting five seasons of it means that we're still like, you know, like Boardwalk Empire, same sort of thing. It's like I I get why this story set in the twenties is focusing around the men doing these things and not the women, but like it's still a show that we're fascinated by and that Netflix or HBO or whomever is greenlighting for five, six, seven uh seasons.
0: I think if it's done well, I think it can be slightly more maybe acceptable is the right word. Don't get um, me wrong. I like uh, both
2: Peaky Blinders and Boardwalk Empire. So.
0: Well, another less famous TV show that pops into my mind, it's a Canadian uh, crime show called Murdoch Mysteries. It's set in the late 1800s, and there is a lot of, you know, like, like Blatant sexism and like, oh, you know, your wife shouldn't be working, be a man and stop drinking during the day and go find a job. But at Which the I, same legitimate time, legitimate point. Yeah. But <laughs> one of the really interesting things is in, I think, in the first couple episodes, the main detective detective murdoch who is catholic is denied a promotion because he is catholic Mm. and you know his superior can be heard saying you know like toronto is a protestant town so yes there is a lot of blatant sexism but they are at least consistent where they are trying to depict toronto in 1895 as accurately as possible so there's also persecution of Catholics, persecution of Irish people. Um, So I really appreciate that it's like, okay, we're going to be as historically accurate as possible, but do it in a way where we are showing kind of like the the pitfalls and why this, you know, is like a bad, bad way of thinking that it's good that we are, you know, to some degree past it now.
2: Yeah, I kind of think like, on the one hand, it gives it a pass in the sense that like it's accurate to depict it that way so you should but then it just comes back to like what are the stories that we're choosing to tell and that are selling um because that mm-hmm. in it, in itself is telling like this story should get a pass but it's the fifth story of this type that we're you know telling for five seasons in a row uh which is in and of itself maybe we start questioning that
1: Well, and I will be the first to admit that frequently my issue is not with these shows or these characters themselves, because, like, I've already admitted, I don't watch a lot of them. Like, I never watched Mad Men. Well, I watched Mad Men on and off. Um, And I I think that the show thinks that don draper is a bad person the problem that i have is then with the audience that idolizes him
2: i I think breaking bad is an even better example of this because like as the show goes on walter white goes from a sympathetic anti-hero shades of gray guy to an actual straight-up villain and too many people watching that show got into season five of breaking bad and were still like Walter White's the best. And he's like, whoa, hold on. Have you been watching the last five episodes, seasons? He got bad. He broke bad. Uh, and you're not supposed to like him anymore. But he's the protagonist. So you, you know, kind of do.
1: Well, and I don't know if either of you watch Rick and Morty. Uh, yep. But yep. this is a problem that that show has as well. Because... Rick is a broken human being. Like, I do not think the show at any point wants you to think that Rick is, like, an aspirational character.
2: And and Martha, we we talked on Twitter that we both like Rick and Morty, but we don't like Rick and Morty fans.
1: Because Rick and Morty fans frequently think think that Rick is, like, awesome. Yeah. (laughs) And it's like, no, he's a terrible and a dysfunctional human being, and the show is not subtle about Making that point, so yeah, I think, yeah, the problem is less the shows themselves and more the people who are still willing to deify these characters.
0: Well, do you think the you know how people deify you know those characters is it because they are simply portrayed as the protagonist on the show that most people will you know be like, okay, I like this character, I'm giving them the benefit of the doubt because they're a protagonist. Or because of how the, you know, protagonist's behavior resonates with, you know, something inside that viewer.
1: I think it's a I little, think a little bit of both. Both. I think I also think part of it is that these are still qualities that our society values in some way. I, so I, I do think they're still reflective of attitudes that say, like, oh yeah. Tony's a murderer and that's bad, but he's also like in charge of all of these people and like knows how to command a room and is really charming and so even the the show is a little bit having its cake and eating it too. Well,
2: and, and I like guess. G- going to like less likable protagonists, you know, Walter White or uh, uh, Rick. Um, it uh, some of it is wish fulfillment, pure and simple, of like. Oh, I'm a I don't know. Unsuccessful, unlikable white dude. I wish I could do all these things. Look at this dude doing it. So like that's part of it, and that also leads into the uh the devils within sort of uh discussion. Um But I think part of it too is it's like if Rick were the villain in a different show, if this were a uh whatever the frig their fake comic thing was vindicators vindicators. The like, vindicators right if it was yeah. the vindicators tv show and it was an episode where they had to stop the evil madman rick uh he would definitely be an enjoyable but horrible villain that no one would be rooting for but people would be like fascinated by so like caitlin i think you're totally right that it's the fact that these people are protagonists even if they're not like good people they're still like the audience Insert like we we the audience have invested time and emotional energy into their story, and so therefore we are going to give them the benefit of the doubt, or we're going to root for them, even while acknowledging that they're bad. I think that does have an important role to play. um I think it's really interesting that some like TV shows and movies and stuff do portray that. Like I think Breaking Bad is is phenomenal, a work of art. I think The Sopranos never finished it. I'm still gonna say it's it's fantastic the wire amazing (laughs) um but like we're so saturated by it that that i think is problematic like what are all these other stories that we're not telling in exchange for another generic story of a broken white man who is a bad guy but whom we're gonna celebrate because he's like interesting quote unquote like and that's what frustrates me and is is quintessential toxic masculinity because that's the only story we tell soapbox getting off the
1: <laughs> Okay. This, okay. It,
0: that just also made me think from Rick and Morty of the character of Jerry, how even though Jerry is kind of portrayed as this weak, you know, kind of like in a lot of people, Rick and back. <laughs> Literally back, a
2: spineless worm in one of the episodes.
0: <laughs> yes, yes. That in some ways, he still portrays a lot of toxic masculinity. Like when he you know, thought that his wife Beth was cheating on him and he like runs to her office being like, You're having an affair, you're not really doing horse surgery right now. Um and just kind of how I think Rick in in later seasons says it really well that Jerry is disarming, but he in some ways he's so manipulative that he's he's still toxic even though he doesn't come off as you know this strong macho guy he does it just he does it a lot more on kind of like an emotional like guilt tripping like this is what you owe me like we originally you know had decided to like have our child and get married together in a way that you know kind of makes your skin crawl still
1: He's all, a little bit more yeah. of the, like, why don't women ever want nice guys? Mm, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
2: We we all assigned more aggressive toxicity, but the nice guy syndrome is definitely a part of toxic masculine, like, culture? I don't know what you'd call it, but, like, well, toxic masculinity.
1: Back, yeah, it goes back to Tony Porter's TED Talk, where he talks about, like, how a big part of this, uh, Is the commoditization of women Mm -hmm. seeing them not as people but as products that you can uh, earn or prizes to be won? Yes, in the immortal words of Princess Jasmine. um,
2: Oh, is that actually from Aladdin?
1: I am not a prize to be won. Yes. Yep. Direct, direct quote. Cool. Or quotation.
0: Direct quotation.
1: I think that that is a good place For us to wrap up I think we may be going a little long on this one But since our discussion is intellectually stimulating I don't care So that is all the time For discussion that we have for today uh, Caitlin, thank you so much For joining us uh, We will be back in two weeks To continue in this vein With our follow-up topic Of antiheroes um, which I will uh, get into the homework for in just a moment. Uh, first, Caitlin, uh, would you like our listeners to be able to find you on social media? And if so, where can they follow you? Um, I
0: really am not on social media. I do not have Twitter. I do not have Instagram. I'm I'm kind of an old dinosaur. It is uh... probably
1: the healthier way to do things. Uh, Pete, where can our listeners find you?
2: You can find me on Twitter at Pico3000 which is P-I-K-O 3000 where I'm talking politics, pop culture and uh, I guess occasionally uh, retweeting my Instagram posts which are not public but you can probably look at them if you look at my Twitter so there we go. Uh,
1: And you can find me everywhere at Magical Martha. Uh, Most recently on Twitter I have been engaged in a shadow campaign uh, to Does let Bill me, know to... what
2: stupid jokes Does... keep talking
1: oh i was gonna say i'm trying to get my husband to let me adopt a third guinea pig uh so oh. i'm <laughs>
2: <laughs> i totally undercut you by doing a stupid joke but it was about him anyway win
1: <laughs> yes there's a there's a lonely little girl at a pet smart that i dearly want to bring home with me so you can follow the adventures of whether or not uh A third pig will be joining my household.
2: Alternatively, if you Uh, live in the Chicagoland area and want a guinea pig, there's one available. Beat Martha to
1: it. She's so sweet and she needs a friend. (laughs) She (laughs) makes me so sad. It makes me so sad to think about her because she is an adult guinea pig that got surrendered to a PetSmart and the odds of her getting adopted soon are very low. But anyway... (laughs) Uh, you can follow the show uh, at homeworkpodcast.com. Uh, you can follow us on Twitter at DYDYHpodcast. Uh, you can find us to listen to on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, basically wherever you find, uh, wherever you get your podcasts. We Apparently
2: will be there as well. they call it Apple Podcasts these days.
1: Uh, yeah, you know. So I've been told. It, Sure.
2: the the app is <laughs> the, the app is called iTunes in my doc, so Apple. Like until you change that, it's gonna be iTunes.
1: I have an iTunes account for this podcast, so that shows you how much I pay attention to what Apple is doing. Um, but yeah, tweet at us, leave us comments, uh, rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. Uh, any attention that you give the show will boost our profile, make it easier for other people to find us and make it easier for other people to listen to us um our topic for next week uh as i have already said will be anti-heroes uh we will be joined by friend of the show and my husband bill sullivan future
2: third pig owner
1: we can only hope (laughs) Uh, the shadow campaign continues Who has assigned us all the 2012 action movie masterpiece, Carl Urban Helmed Dread. Carl Urban
2: Chinned Dread.
1: This is, no joke, one of my like top 10 movies ever. I'm very excited about talking about it with you guys.
2: I love this movie too. I'm excited that he assigned it.
1: (laughs) Uh, My homework for you all is the girl with the dragon tattoo... Uh the book version by Stieg Larsson originally published in English in 2008. Uh Pete what have you got for us? I am
2: assigning the noir classic 1941's The Maltese Falcon with Humphrey Bogart and Peter Lorre and other people. All right then. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I don't uh, know, it's great. Okay. you all you have all seen Maltese Falcon whatever. It's great. have fun
1: I have I have not.
2: Ooh, well, double have fun. <laughs> it's really good.
1: I uh, I'm looking forward to it. I think it'll be a good discussion. We will see you all next week. Caitlin, thank you again so much for joining us. Yeah uh have fun doing your homework. Class dismissed.